Well, teaching ethics to a child is quite different than teaching ethics to an adult. Because children need unambiguous rules, clear instructions. Tell the truth. Stay buckled in your seat. Do not hit your brother in the face. Of course, watch out with that last one because tomorrow he might just hit his brother in the arm because you said in the face, right? So for children, you have to spell it out for them. But when you become an adult, hopefully you mature to a place where you see more nuance and complexity in matters of right and wrong. You learn that there's actually some ambiguity in the rules and instructions that we live by, ambiguity that you're meant to wrestle with. I mean, do you stay buckled in your seat if the person sitting next to you has something lodged in her throat and she can't breathe? Of course not. You unbuckle yourself, you scoot over, you take immediate action. That is, unless you're the one driving the car, and that would endanger everyone else riding in the car. So instead, you would pull over, stop the car, and then take action, right? It can be complex. But most of the time, knowing the right thing to do in any given situation is not near this obvious. It's complicated at times. It's messy. There are competing values, a, a variety of factors to consider different interests involved. It's rarely black and white. And if you think like a child in these situations and blindly follow the letter of the law, someone is going to get hurt. I remember being a few years into seminary with enough Greek under my belt that I could finally start taking courses on entire books of the New Testament and study them in the original language. Exciting stuff. And so what class did I decide to jump into first? No question. It was, of, it was of course, Paul's magnificent letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans. I mean, how could you go wrong with that? Well, answer, by having a lousy professor. First day of class, this is what he says. I've learned that if we're going to get through all 16 chapters of Romans in one semester, then we will have to stick to the schedule. So no rabbit trails, no debating alternative readings or interpretations, no wrestling with the text. Instead, in each class, I will present my notes on this section, and then the next, and then the next, and if we stay the course, we'll get through it all. Well, we did get through every single chapter in the book of Romans, and it was one of the worst classes I ever had in seminary. Isn't that a shame? And it was all because this professor was only interested in teaching us what to know, or what he knew. He wasn't at all interested in teaching us how to think. He was treating us like children and not like adults. The best teachers don't teach you what to know. They understand that education is not about making you memorize a set of answers so that you can ace the next quiz. No. They teach you how to think, how to discern, how to respond to different sets of data, how to problem solve and assess various situations on a case-by-case basis. In other words, they treat you like an adult. My friends, this is true of God as well. God treats us like adults. 
His desire is that we would grow out of our childish ways of thinking and grow into a more mature way of learning how to think, of learning how to make decisions and navigate what is often the moral ambiguities of life. And I think we can say that we know this for at least two reasons. First of all, because God did not give us a list of rules for every scenario in life one might encounter. I mean, contrary to Christian pop culture, the Bible is not a rule book. In fact, the Bible's not even a book. It's a library, right? That's, that's what Biblia means. It's an ancient collection of narratives and poetry, parables and prophetic material, law codes and laments, which means it takes maturity and wisdom to engage the Bible, God's Word, and apply it to our lives today. Now, yes, I know you can find a few rules scattered here or there throughout the Scriptures, but get this, those rules, they are always embedded in an ancient world with its own unique context and purpose. And so it would be childish to apply these rules today straight off the page without blinking. It's why we don't require women to wear head coverings at church. It's why we don't greet one another with a holy kiss. It's why we don't silence women in the church, all of which are explicit commands found in the New Testament. But you see, we know that there is a complexity to applying the Bible, and that requires what? Thinking like an adult. It requires maturity. And this is on purpose, by the way. I mean, when you think about it, a book dropped from heaven that has all the right answers to each and every question in life takes all the hard work out of it. All the hard work out of the, for, the moral formation required to become a person who knows how to deliberate, who knows how to discern, who knows how to make wise and loving decisions on a case-by-case basis. Yes, God wants us to grow into maturity. And so he treats us like adults. We also know this is true, that God treats us like adults, that he wants us to think like adults. Because secondly, well, just look at the life of Jesus. Jesus is anything but plain and simple, the farthest thing from my Romans professor. For one, think about Jesus' main teaching method, right? Telling parables. The gospel accounts record almost 40 distinct parables of Jesus, and not a single one of them has a clear and obvious meaning. I mean, if your aim is to get people to comprehend black and white information, parables are not the way to go at all. But if you want to move people to own the moment, to take responsibility and to work out for themselves, of course, based on certain values and principles, well then, how do you do that? You tell them a story. You tell them a story that will stimulate their imaginations, just like a a good business ethics professor using case studies to get his students to wrestle and to think with different situations in life. Or what about how Jesus answers questions that are put to him? Have you ever thought about that? How does, how does Jesus typically answer questions? He rarely, if ever, gives a straightforward response. No, he usually answers questions with more questions or a parable, right? He's getting people to think. And like the other rabbis of his day, Jesus, he loves to, de- to debate, especially the meaning of the Old Testament law with his fellow Jews, right? Not because he thinks the law is a bad thing, but because he is doing what mature Jews have done always when faced with the complexities of interpreting and applying 
the Mosaic law. Here's one that we all know. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the the Lord your God, and you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, even your livestock. Okay, great, got it. Except one thing. What constitutes work? Well, that one question opens up a massive can of worms, and so let the debates begin. The rabbinic tradition even lays out 39 different categories about what constitutes work. And so one of those, for example, is plowing. Well, that plowing, that makes sense. Great, got it. Okay, okay, I can do that. No plowing. But wait, wait, wait. What if I moved a bench from here to there and it made a little furrow in the ground? Is that plowing? Is that, is that work? Now, I know this might seem ridiculous at first, but really it's just about taking the commands of God seriously and then thinking through and debating and deliberating and applying what we as mature adults think is the, is the what? The true spirit of the law. I mean, this is how it has always worked. And so with that in mind, as we finally turn to our gospel story for today, Know that we are entering into this kind of exercise, this kind of debate, right? What does it mean to be faithful to God in keeping the Sabbath holy? This isn't a question of whether or not the Sabbath law is valid or or whether or not the Sabbath law is a good thing. It is a good thing. But it's rather a question of how you interpret and apply it. Now listen, Jesus, you must remember, is a faithful Jew. He has a deep respect for the Jewish tradition, He studies Torah. He follows Torah. He he goes to synagogue. He observes Passover. When Jesus first launches his public ministry, listen to how Luke describes it. He says, Jesus began to teach in their synagogues, right? So Jesus was a regular Jewish teacher. Indeed, that's exactly what he's doing at the beginning of our story today, isn't it? He's teaching in the synagogue at the Sabbath. This is what Jesus did in his ministry. And that's when a woman walks in, and she's been over, she's unable to stand up straight, and Jesus sees her, and he calls her forward, and without her saying a word, he sets her free. Now, the leader of the synagogue can't believe his eyes. He can't believe what he just saw. His guest preacher just broke the fourth commandment right in front of his entire congregation. I mean, he's the shepherd of the flock, and so he must call out this behavior. And so he says, listen, there are six days on which work ought to be done, quoting directly from the Old Testament. He says, come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. You know something? He's right. I mean, thus saith the Lord, you shall not work on the Sabbath, right? You see, the intentions of the synagogue leader are good. He truly wants to obey God. He he wants his people to obey God. In fact, it's likely that he was even familiar with our Old Testament lesson for today from Isaiah 58. You remember that part where it speaks about the Sabbath? It says, If you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and he will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. Yes, yes. That's what the synagogue leader wants. 
He wants to be seen as one who is faithful to God and his covenant to lead a people who are obedient to God's holy word. And so, yes, he is a good kid. But it's just that. He's operating like a child. He's acting like a kid, right? Because things are often not as simple and straightforward as they appear. There are bigger issues at stake here, competing values. Sometimes you have to break the letter of the law in order to obey it. Or put the other way, you can be true to the letter of the law and still break it. Jesus understood this. And so he cries out, you hypocrites, you little children, the whole point of the Sabbath, the whole point of the law is to love God and love your neighbor. In fact, if there was ever a time when Jesus was unambiguous about a question, it was when he was asked, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he clearly names two, love God, love your neighbor. The Apostle Paul, as intricate as his teachings can be, he does the same thing. In Romans 13, he says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the entire Mosaic law. He repeats himself in Galatians 5. He says, the whole law, he's talking about the Mosaic law, the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, he says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Even James, the brother of Jesus who is often seen to be at odds with some of Paul's teaching. Well, at least they agree on this, right? On this one point. Love for neighbor stands preeminent. It's all through the book of James. He even quotes that verse. Now, I know that certainly doesn't simplify our every moral dilemma. It doesn't answer our every question. I realize that. But it does give us a bedrock principle by which we as adults can live and make decisions as followers of Jesus. So that in whatever issue we're wrestling with, We have a guiding light that will lead us. How might I best express love for my neighbor? This is what it means to put childish ways aside. To realize that sometimes you have to break the letter of the law to love your neighbor. And that in doing so, you actually fulfill the law. See if you've heard this verse before. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. You've probably heard that before. Do you remember the context of that verse? Do you remember where it's found? Right in the middle of Paul's famous chapter on love. 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, love is patient, love is kind, Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. There's our guiding principle, love. And part of Paul's point is that it takes maturity to love well. We must think and reason like adults because life is complex. Sometimes doing a good thing or even the right thing can actually hinder love. And we have to be able to recognize that just like Jesus did. I think sometimes we as Christians are prone to build these massive fortresses of good in our lives. 
When in the end, these fortresses actually enclose us off from the needs of others. They shut us out from loving our neighbor like we could or perhaps like we should. I mean, it's not like we're doing anything explicitly wrong. Indeed, we might even be doing a lot of good things. But listen, if these good things are keeping us from loving our neighbor, maybe they're not so good. And other times, I think that we as Christians operate with another guiding principle instead of loving your neighbor. It's the principle of uh, being right. We think that being right is the most important thing. We think that as long as we're right, as long as we're proclaiming the truth, then we can protest any way we see fit. We can take action for this issue or that issue, no matter the collateral damage, all because we think we're on the right side of that issue. But friends, these are childish ways of thinking. If you're right and have not love, then you're wrong. You're just a a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. And if you do good and have not love, then you're just a do-gooder, a legalist. More interested in the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. Because the whole point of the law, the law exists to point you toward loving your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting to me that in the same passage from Isaiah 58 that we read a moment ago, you know, the one that speaks of delighting in the Sabbath and how important it is to to, to observe the Sabbath, that passage also reminds us that, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. That in delighting the Sabbath, we must also pay attention to the needs of those around us, especially the vulnerable, especially those on the margins. I don't know if you remember what it says. It also says that if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the, new, the noonday. So it's not just about keeping the letter of the law. It's not just about obeying Sabbath. It's about doing what the whole law points to, loving your neighbor. And it takes maturity to love like that. It takes maturity to love well. So Lord, have mercy upon us and give us the maturity it requires to always love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to think like adults and put childish ways behind as we think through and navigate the complexities of life and seek to follow Jesus. May love for neighbor stand preeminent in our thinking. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.